We are continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians, so let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Thessalonian believers had seen Paul give them the gospel initially amidst uh, severe opposition. And within several months, probably, uh, Paul and Silas were forced to leave the city of, of Thessalonica. And the Thessalonians initially had realized that Paul was not seeking uh, money, their money, or popularity or, or fame, but they saw the purity of his message. But apparently over this last year or so, some people either from outside the church, but uh, either from inside the church, but more likely outside the church, they tried to convince the believers there that Paul had come with improper motives. And he was trying to get something out of them. He was doing a little bait and switch. Here's my gospel message, but here's what I really want from you. I want your money, or I want popularity, I want my name to be known. And the reason I know this is because Paul places emphasis here on his purity and how the Thessalonians knew it firsthand. They had seen it for themselves. And you will see that as we go through this. The the accusers of Paul here are trying to destroy the faith of the Thessalonians. So watch for that as we read through this passage, and then I'll explain a little bit more as we go through. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the Word of God. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So this slander from the apostle, uh, from, against the Apostle Paul was was probably coming from outside of the church. Look at chapter 2, verse 17, and here's why I say that. But we, brethren, have having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Okay, so Paul's saying, listen, I know how you responded to the gospel. I know that you accepted it as truth. And so that's why I say the slander that's coming to the Apostle Paul is coming 
outside of the church, not from the Thessalonians themselves. There must have been some troublemakers outside. And that's why Paul keeps saying, notice verse 1 again. He says, you yourselves know, brethren. You know this. Because you saw it for yourself. Look at verse 2. But after we had had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, look at verse 5, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know. Verse 11, just as you know. Look at verse 9, for you recall. And then verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God. So, so here you go. You, you have the proof that I wasn't coming with all these wrong motives trying to get something out of you. But rather, I was coming with purity. You know it because you saw it for yourselves. But not only you are you my witness, but God is as well. Notice this as it, we see it throughout the text. Verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God... And then at the end of the verse, but God who examines our hearts. Okay, We're not seeking to please men, but it's God who examines our hearts. And then in verse 5, uh, at the end of the verse, you know, nor with the pretext or greed, uh, of greed, God is witness. God knows that we're not doing this for ulterior motives. Verse 10, you are witnesses and so is God. So there are two witnesses that speak to the clarity and purity of Paul's message. The Thessalonians themselves, they saw it with their their own eyes firsthand. And God is is witness to their purity. And he goes on to list several of these. We'll see them throughout the text. But, you know, in verse 3, not from error, not from impurity, not from way of deceit. Verse 4, not pleasing men. Verse 5, not flattering speech, not with flattering speech, not with a pretext of greed. Verse 6, not seeking glory from men. Verse 9, not a burden to any of you. So those are all the reasons why we didn't come to you, as these people have been saying. And and what's at stake here is the reputation of Paul, uh, not so much the reputation of Paul as a person, but rather the reception of the Gospel. Because he didn't want to see, look at chapter 3, verse 5, He didn't want to see their faith be in vain. Verse 5 of chapter 3, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. There's Paul's fear right there. I don't want to see the ministry that I had to you fail. Not for my sake, but for your sake. That you will be able to stand before God one day and be accepted by Him because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Paul has a special ministry to these people. And while we could take and we could go through here and say, okay, how does Paul minister to people? This is how we should minister to people. I think that would be helpful, but the primary point of the text is that Paul is defending himself from his accusers. And we need to, to recognize that. And what we're going to see tonight is that those who live for the Gospel are used by God to transform sinners into saints. Those who live for the Gospel are used by God to transform sinners into saints. First, we see in verses 2 through 11, we're going to start at the end of the passage and come back, actually starting at the middle, 2 through 11, and at the end we'll look at verses 1 and 12. But verses 2 through 11, those who live for the Gospel will gladly give of themselves. Those who live for the Gospel will gladly give of themselves. 
Paul gave himself in several ways. Number one, Paul gave himself by sacrificing his own safety. And this is what we ought to do for the sake of the Gospel. If we really love the Gospel, if we really live for the Gospel, then we we will, on occasion, sacrifice our own safety. This is what Paul did in Acts chapter 16, which is where the record of Paul coming to Thessalonica is recorded for us. You remember what happens there. In fact, we've been studying this on Wednesday night. There's a fortune teller there in the town, a young lady who's got some uh, demonic ability to determine the, the events of people's lives, and she's making a profit for her master's. She comes around saying things about Paul, and Paul, after several days of her doing this, was annoyed by her and cast a demon out of her. Well, that eliminated her powers to be able to tell uh, the future, apparently. And so this, in turn, took away the prophets of the masters. And they were not very happy, as you can imagine. So they grabbed Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the middle of the city and brought them before the chief magistrates. And the chief magistrates, in order to appease the crowd, to keep the mob from being from overwhelming them, they, without a trial, publicly beat Paul and Silas with rods, and then they put him in prison. Do you remember the story? Acts chapter 16. The next day, they were released. Uh, that actually happened in Philippi. Uh, but, but they were released from prison in Philippi, And then do you know where they went from Philippi? They went to Thessalonica in chapter 17. In chapter 17, they weren't treated much better there because they had been ministering in the synagogue for for quite a while, for uh, at least three weeks. And then some period, period of time after that, the Jews came in and wanted to stop them from preaching the gospel because all these people were coming to Christ. They were gaining a large influence. You know what Paul would have looked like when he came from the Philippian jail to Thessalonica? Paul had been beaten a few days earlier and he comes into the city of Thessalonica, takes on a job of some kind, and starts ministering to people, reaching them for the sake of Christ. And do you know what he would have looked like? He would have had fresh wounds on his body from being beaten with rods. And here's what he's telling the Thessalonians in this passage. You remember that. You remember that I didn't come here to gain anything for myself. I came at great risk for my life. I sacrificed my own safety for the sake of the Gospel. And that's because Paul and Silas were more concerned about lost souls than they were about their own safety, their own personal comfort. And I made application on Wednesday that that we often sacrifice opportunities to share the gospel with people because we want to protect our own safety, our own comfort. We want to make sure that our family's protected and so, you know, we're not going to go somewhere where it's dangerous to give the gospel. Or if our grandchild or our child wants to go into the mission field and it's a dangerous place in the world where they, they might lose their life, we won't let them. We strongly oppose them. Because we're more concerned about their personal safety and comfort than we are the spread of the Gospel. If we live for the Gospel, we will be willing to sacrifice our safety for the sake of the Gospel. Not only do they sacrifice their own safety, but in verses 3-6, through 
They sacrificed their own popularity. Their own popularity. Notice in verse 3, he says, Our exhortation does not come from error. He gives three things here. See, for Paul, truth was more important than popularity. He says, I don't sacrifice truth for the sake of my popularity. I'm not going to come to you in error. We understand that what I'm saying to you is, Paul saying, is truthful proclamation. I'm not pulling the wool over your eyes. This is not from error. And it's also not, notice in verse 3, it's not from impurity. You say, wait a second, Paul, why would you ever give a message from impurity? Why would a person ever proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ from impure motives or impure hearts? Well, you have to recognize that many of the pagan religions would, would draw a crowd because they taught that adopting their pagan religion would give a person, the recipient of that message, would give them license to be immoral. Paul's saying, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that in order to gain a, a larger crowd. And so here you go, I'm going to give you a license to do all this sin. I'm speaking to you from the truth, from the truth of God's Word. And then thirdly, he says in verse 3, not from deceit by way of deceit. He wasn't tricking them in order to get something for himself, was he? He was speaking clearly to them based on what the Scriptures had said because truth was more important than popularity for Paul. In verse 4, we see that God's approval was more important than man's. Verse 4 reads, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but, and we could include the words, as pleasing God who examines our hearts. Paul's saying, I'm not here to serve men primarily. That's not the end goal. It's to make sure the people are happy. Because if serving men is our end goal, then what's going to happen is that our message is going to be modified to fit that end goal so that they're happy. The temptation for those of us who speak the message of the Gospel, and and we ultimately all should be doing that. The temptation is to gear our message to their desires so that we can uh, appease the hearer. But Paul wanted to be clear that 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 was not his motive. It's not my motive to please men. I'm here to please God who examines the heart. And that's what he says at the first part of the verse and at the very end. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel. So, you Thessalonians know that I came with the right motive. God knows it because He examines my heart. And therefore, I'm willing to sacrifice an opportunity to be popular for the sake of the Gospel. Those who live for the Gospel will sacrifice their own popularity. In verse 5, And verse 6, we see clarity and purity were more important than personal recognition. Clarity and purity are more important than personal recognition. Notice verse 5. He says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. Paul is saying, You know, if I smooth talked you, then I would have been able to gain a large influence over you and over other people. I could have done that. I might have been able to lull you into a sense, a false sense of security so that I could get out of you what I wanted. But I didn't come with flattering speech. My speech was weak. 
It was foolishness to those who are perishing, as he says in 1 Corinthians 2. But it is life to those who are being saved. It's not with flattering speech. Nor, verse 5, with a pretext for greed. A pretext for greed. That's a little bit hard to understand in the New American Standard. I like the translation that the NIV has. The cover-up of greed. A little bit easier to understand. Or even the King James Version, I think, is a helpful translation. The cloak of covetousness. Okay, The cloak, that is, you understand the picture of a cloak. It's like you're wearing a garment to cover up something that's really inside. Paul's saying, I'm not trying to cover something up. When I give you this message, I'm, I'm all hidden in here. Okay, and then if you accept my message, then I'm eventually going to take the cloak off and you're going to see who I really am and what I really want. But I didn't do that to you. There was no cloak of greed here or cloak of covetousness. I wasn't trying to hide anything. In Acts 20, verse 33, I said, he said, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. Paul wasn't trying to mask his real intentions in order to line his pockets, right? And if you have even the smallest question of Paul's intentions with regard to his money, look at verse 9, because this is what he says that he does. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how? Working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul's actions are in sharp contrast to those who come into a town with a desire for profit and reputation and then roll out never with any concern about a person's spiritual well-being. Perhaps you've seen preachers like this on TV or you've heard them on the radio or you've seen them at events where they come into town, they put on a huge event, And their goal is not for the spiritual well-being of the people, but to line their own pockets. And so they come in with this flowery message. And the hearers just eat it up because it doesn't usually talk about their own judgment. It doesn't talk about their sin. It talks about how good they are and how God wants to be like a loving father to them, a loving grandfather. Just, I'm going to overlook all those things. We recognize that the Gospel has to bring into focus our own sin and the judgment we receive before God if we're going to understand what the cross means. We were deserving of God's wrath and we could not satisfy His demands. Only Jesus Christ could. And that's why the cross is so beautiful. Because we could do nothing. And God demands for us a perfect life. But we can't live a perfect life, can we? No one of us is perfect, even after coming to Christ. No one of us is perfect. And so the only thing that God will accept in place of of perfection is what? It is faith in the One who was perfect, Jesus Christ. And that's the beauty of the Gospel. But these people come in, you know who they are, they come in and they give their flowery message without talking about sin and judgment and their need to be saved And the people walk out feeling good about themselves. But the person who came in and did that had an ulterior motive to line their own pockets. They were not concerned about the spiritual well-being of the hearers. And Paul's saying, you know I didn't do that. You know it. I didn't come with the pretext of greed. That's why I worked night and day so that I would not be a burden to you. I didn't want you to give me any money because I knew at some point 
Someone would question my motives with regard to money. And so I purposely removed that doubt from your minds by working night and day. And then at the end of verse 6, he says, I could have flouted my authority as an apostle, even though, notice at the the end of verse 6, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. I wasn't seeking the glory of men. I could have used my authority as an apostle to, to, to be domineering over you, but I didn't flout that. I didn't flaunt it. He recognized that the power was not in his position, but it was in the message that he preached. So he didn't make a big deal about his apostleship when he came to Thessalonica. He wanted to move aside. Like John says, you know, he must increase and I must what? I must decrease. And that's what Paul's saying I'm doing. I'm moving out of the way so that God can get all the glory. It's not about me as an apostle. It's about the message of Jesus Christ. So, Paul, because he loved the Gospel, was willing to sacrifice his own safety, verse 2. And he was Secondly, willing to sacrifice his own popularity, verses 3 through 6, in order for the gospel to take center stage. Number three, those who live for the gospel are gentle. They are gentle in their handling of people and their problems. They are gentle, verses 7 and 8. In contrast to verse 6, asserting his authority, instead of that, he says in verse 7, I proved or we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. What a beautiful picture. The word cares there in verse 7 is only used one other time, and it's used in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. And there it refers to the Lord's loving, caring relationship for his church. It's a beautiful picture because Christ was willing to lay down His life. And, and the image that Paul wants to, us to have in, his, in our minds, the image that he wanted the Thessalonians to have in their minds, was one of him and Silas as nursing mothers for their little children. Now in those days, it was common for a mother to contract the feeding of her baby out to a wet nurse. And this wet nurse would feed the baby and care for the child. And the nurse certainly would be gentle with the child, but not nearly as gentle as the baby's mother, right? And Paul's saying, notice how he, he paints this picture. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Paul's saying, I treated you like you were one of mine tenderly caring for you. And you see this beautiful picture that a mother is willing to give up of herself and her, her, her greatest energy for the sake of this little baby that she loves. Paul's saying, that's the way I was with you. I'm not like some hired help who's coming in for a short time and just going to leave. No, that's not me. I cared for you deeply and I'm not going to desert you at the earliest sign of trouble. And the reason that he was gentle with them was because he had a deep desire for the gospel to take root in them. And so he pulled out all the stops. Even when, as far as giving his own life for them. That's what it says in verse 8, "...having so fond an affection for you, we were pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, 
but her own lives. I laid down my life for you. Not in a final way where he was willing to give it over to death, but the point is that he gave up everything for their sake so that the gospel would be heard. So those who live for the gospel will sacrifice their own safety. They will sacrifice their own popularity. They will be gentle. And then number four, they will sacrifice their own resources. Verse 9. We saw this briefly, but let me read it to you again. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We worked night and day, Paul says. Paul was so concerned about avoiding potential stumbling blocks for these people. He thought, you know, what if they come in with a crooked eye with me, uh, to me and Silas, and, and they think that we're doing this for the money. I want to remove all those doubts, so I'm going to take care of my own finances. Now, if you remember from the rest of the book of Acts, you find out in Philippians, I think Philippians 4.16, says, Paul says that you sent me a gift two times while I was on, in Thessalonica. So apparently he was there for a longer period of time and and he had received some gifts from from Philippi to help. But the primary source of his income came from his own hard work. From him doing this uh, side job, probably tent making. And that would require him to work long hours in order to provide for himself and for Silas. Why did he do this? I mean, is there something inherently wrong with accepting money for the sake of the Gospel? Is there something wrong with accepting money for preaching the Gospel full-time? Well, no, because we, we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says that he had every right to earn a living from the Gospel. But here's what he said. He said, I personally did not accept money from them because I knew that there would be false claims against me. I had the right to accept money for the sake of the Gospel. In fact, he tells churches in other places that they ought to provide for those who labor over them. Those who have spiritual charge over them. You ought to do that. So Paul's saying it's not wrong to do that, but I personally didn't accept it. Because I didn't want anybody to think that I was ministering the Gospel for the sake of money. He wanted to be crystal clear that it was not about the money, but rather about the Gospel. So, they, for those who love the Gospel, those who live for the Gospel, sacrifice their own safety, sacrifice their own popularity. They're gentle. They sacrifice their own resources. And then verses 10 and 11, they are honest and encouraging. In verse 10, we see that they are honest. Paul says, You are witnesses, and so is God. Here's his two witnesses again how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. There's some integrity there. There's some honesty there. You, you know exactly how we were among you. We weren't trying to deceive you. And then encouraging, verse 11. Notice the image he used here. Before it was a nursing mother caring for her own child. Here it's as a father would encourage his child. Verse 11, just as you know, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. These three terms are probably just a piling up of synonyms, the same idea, that is exhortation. It's true that, that the father has many responsibilities for his children. He has responsibility to provide for them. 
to protect them. But here, Paul is focusing on one specific responsibility, and that is to instruct them, to encourage them to do what is right. He was exhorting and encouraging them and imploring them to do what is right. And here's how I am like a father to you. I'm like a father to you because I'm encouraging you to do what is right. And so what you should see from that is I'm not here with with an ulterior motive. But I'm giving you the truth out of love, out of a heart that loves you and wants to see it take root in you. Those who, lo- those who live for the Gospel will gladly give of themselves by sacrificing their own resources, their safety, their popularity, by being gentle, by being honest and encouraging. And then the second thing we need to see is in verse 1 and verse 12. Those who live for the Gospel will see the Gospel of God powerfully transform people. Have you seen the Gospel of God powerfully transform people that you're ministering to? Because those who live for the Gospel will see this firsthand. Verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Because Paul and Silas gladly gave themselves and their lives for the sake of the Gospel, God, God powerfully worked in them to transform them. And he's saying our, our message to you, it was not in vain. That's what verse 1 is about. Notice the first word of the verse. For. For. So this points us back to the previous chapter, when he was talking about, he, he was confident in their conversion, that it was genuine, that it was genuine repentance, that you turn to God from what? From idols to serve the living and the true God. And then in verse 10 of chapter 1, that you expressed genuine faith. You were waiting the hope of, of Jesus Christ, His return who will deliver us from the wrath to come, the last verse of chapter 1. And after he says that, that your your, uh, conversion was genuine, you both repented and believed, so, or for, you know our coming did not come in vain. See, so it was valuable. Our coming to you was valuable. It was necessary. Paul, Paul knew, and they knew, that he was not sincere, insincere in his presentation of the gospel. One of Paul's fears, as I mentioned earlier from chapter 3, verse 5, is that their labor, that Paul and Silas' labor would be in vain. All this work that they had done to try to establish the church and see the, the Word of God take root in their hearts, Paul's fear was that it would not help. It would be in vain. But what he's saying here in chapter 2, verse 1, is that it was not in vain because I see a genuine conversion of your soul. You have been changed from a sinner to a saint. And what is it that God produced in them? How could Paul see that his labor was not in vain? Look at verse 12. This gives us the answer. This is the end goal. This is what Paul is trying to see in them. So that I did all these things I exhorted you like a father. I didn't come in pretext of greed and all these things. I didn't do. I did all these things and avoided coming with wrong motives, so that verse twelve, you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. All of the sacrifice that I had to personally make and Silas had to personally make was worth it all. 
if you are called by God into His kingdom and glory. That you have this high calling into the royal family of God to be a part of His kingdom and share in His glory. It's all worth it. And this is what I'm trying to see happen in you, that you would walk in a manner worthy of that calling. As believers, I hope that you recognize that we have been adopted into the family of God. As one song says, we once were His enemies, but now we're seated at His table. It's a beautiful thing. It's a great privilege. Undeserved. Unearned. Unwanted, really, on our part. Apart from God's grace. We've been adopted into this royal family. The family of the King of all creation. A person who was the son of royalty would have been given a higher standard to live than just a commoner, a commoner's son. Because the conduct of the king's child would reflect on whom? It would reflect on the character of the king, right? And so that child would need to live worthy of being a king's child, a king's son or a king's daughter. And Paul's saying that even more so, we must live up to this high moral standard that has been set by us, set by God for us. Because we are part of the family of the Almighty God, not just some earthly king who rises to power in a short period of time and then falls quickly, like the flower of grass that fades away. But we are part of the, king, the family of the King of all kings, the King who has always reigned over the universe and who always will. And that means for Paul and for us that we, we must walk in a manner worthy of that. What do you suppose that kind of life looks like? It is a holy life, like we sang about tonight. It is a holy life. Paul wanted to see in them, and God wants to see in us, a pursuit of genuine holiness. Because as Hebrews says, without holiness or without sanctification, no one, not one person, will see the Lord. And so our calling to be a part of the royal family of God requires us to walk worthy of that calling. And if we're not pursuing holiness, if we're not becoming more and more holy, it's probably a good indication that God hasn't allowed us to join His family. That we're not a part of His adopted family. That we haven't expressed our faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. That we're trusting something else to be accepted before God. Perhaps our own works. But if God has called us into His family, then we have the assurance that we're a part of that family and we also see, see uh, levels of growth. We, we see uh, evidence of growth to more and more holiness. Let me just give you a few points of application as we conclude this evening. Number one, God has called us to be ministers of the Gospel. God has called us to be ministers of the Gospel. I'm not talking about a formal position of the church. God has called some for that purpose. But as a servant of God, you are a servant of God's message. We've all been called to be stewards of that message. How are we going to use it? Are we going to be like the guy who had the one talent and he dug, you know, he dug a hole in the ground and he hid it in there? Is that how we're going to, to be stewards of God's message? Are we going to, to make sure that we see growth out of it? We invest it in the lives of other people. We are called to be ministers 
of the Gospel. And number two, because God has called us to be ministers of the Gospel, we must interpret our circumstances in light of the Gospel. We must interpret our circumstances in light of the Gospel. You are going to experience some rough sledding when you present the Gospel to people. How are you going to view your circumstances? Are you going to view that God is pouring out His judgment on you? Are you going to view your circumstances that the Gospel really doesn't work? That the Gospel is dead? How are you going to view your circumstances when you're rejected because of the message that you're telling them? God's not punishing you. The Gospel is not dead. Negative circumstances are not a sign for God's people of His judgment upon them Christ has already borne all the judgment that you deserve. Do you realize that? Christ has already borne all the judgment that you deserve. God, as your heavenly Father, as your King, is not going to judge you. If you think you have to pay penance for your sin, then you don't understand the Gospel. Because Christ has already took all of that upon Himself. Do you believe that Christ was sufficient? Do you believe that He was enough to pay for all of the penalty that you deserve to pay? And what that means is He's not going to judge you for your sin. He may discipline you. Hebrews 12 talks about that. But He only does it as a loving Father to get you back on the track of righteousness. He's not judging you. He's not punishing you. Instead, when we present the Gospel to other people, we're rejected. The message is rejected. First of all, don't take it personally because ultimately they're rejecting Christ, not us. And secondly, if our circumstances are negative when we're giving the Gospel to other people, we should see that as a, an evidence of what it looks like to live a life in Christ or with Christ. What did Christ say? they rejected me, they will reject you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And the only reason they're doing that is because they persecuted me first. Don't be in despair or in depression because of your circumstances, because you're giving the Gospel. That's not a sign of God's hatred of you or that the Gospel is dead. Keep on giving the Gospel. It's a sign that you have been, you have been joined with Christ in His effort to advance His name. Just as you were being persecuted and rejected, so was Christ. God called us to be ministers of the Gospel. Therefore, we must interpret our circumstances in light of the Gospel, not the other way around. Number three, we must live like a loving parent to those whom we are ministering. We must live like a loving parent. Paul says, I was like a... I was as gentle as a nursing mother to her own child. I was encouraging and exhorting like a loving father would do, like a loving godly father would do. And that's the way I am to the people to whom I minister. And so that means for us, we need to be both gentle with people as we await for them to accept and to respond and to be changed by the Gospel, but we also need to be firm with them. We need to be firm with them. Say, listen, you need to respond to God. This is the God of the universe. Don't keep putting it off. 
I, like a father, am here to encourage you to do what is right and to move on towards greater godliness. By the way, that doesn't stop once they accept Christ in salvation. That should be something that we all are encouraging one another to do. Continue on toward godliness as a loving father would do. But the extreme of that is that we can be overbearing. We can be domineering. And Paul says, I was as gentle as a nursing mother to her own child, and that's the way we have to be at times. We have to be willing to set aside our desires to see them turn and 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 uh, you know be be sanctified now. Set aside that sort of mentality and recognize that you know this takes time, patience, a loving concern for these people must be like a loving parent. And then finally, we should take the example of Paul and recognize that God's approval is more important than man's. God's approval is more important than man's approval. You will be tempted to change the message of the Gospel. And the reason I know that is because you are like thousands of others who have gone before you, thousands of other people who are in the, in the world who have the real message of the Gospel. And they are constantly being tempted to change the message of the Gospel. You will be tempted to meet their felt needs. You know, if I can just make them feel better about themselves, then, then maybe that's what, what the Gospel is about. But that's not what the Gospel is about. They first need to understand their own sin, just like you did before you came to Christ. And then they need to understand their need for a Savior. And then they need to recognize that Jesus is the Savior. And He satisfied all the demands of God to be made right before Him. So that means we need to be more concerned about God's approval than about man's approval. We can give a watered-down message to lots of different people and we can go away feeling good about ourselves because we weren't rejected and the people might have liked us. But we failed if we've done only that, gotten people to like us, we failed. God's approval is what's most important. Paul recognized that. And so you need to make sure, I need to make sure that God's name is revered above all else and that the Savior is magnified and that the Gospel remains pure as you speak it. God's approval is more important than man's. And let me just give you one kind of sub-point under this I think would be helpful for our own church, and that is pray for me that I would not give in to the temptation to water down the message for the sake of the hearers. Not only when I proclaim the Gospel to other people, but when I speak to you. This is a constant temptation that all messengers of the Gospel have. And with me, being, uh, with me doing it so often in front of you, the temptation is to change the message to adapt to the hearers. So that I can... Uh, gain some more approval. So I'd encourage you to pray for me in that regard as well. Pray for one another as we give the Gospel to the lost around us. Don't ever lose sight of what Christ did for you and what you would love to see happen in the lives of people around you. If you love the Gospel, you will give of yourself. And when you do, you're going to see lives transformed right before your eyes 
And you know what God's going to do? He's going to use you to help transform their lives. You're going to be a conduit of His transformation. And there are a few things that are more exciting to see in life than to see God use you as an instrument of His grace. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, humbled by Your mercy to us. It is unmerited. It is undeserved. And it was unwanted by us. Not only did we not have the ability to come to You on our own, but we were una- not only were we not willing to come to you on our own, but we were unable to, as Romans 8 says. We didn't want to come to you because we loved our sin. We loved our master, Satan. And it was only through the power of your cross and the beautiful message of the gospel that the Spirit enlivened our hearts, that he regenerated us. He gave us spiritual life when we were spiritually dead. We could do nothing. We didn't need to be revived. We weren't just sick and needed a little bit of medication to make us right before You. We needed we needed a resurrection spiritually. And that can only come through Your Spirit. And so we praise You for the grace that we see in salvation. We praise You for how it continually transforms us and that You have promised that all in whom you have started a work, you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we accept that promise as true and we count on that promise. And we pray that you would accomplish that in our lives. Finish what you started. We know that you will because you're a faithful God. We trust that you will. And we trust that you'll do it in the lives of others. Help us to be conduits of your grace. Help us to be messengers of your beautiful gospel. Thankful for Jesus Christ. May the world around us, the lost family, the lost co-workers, people in our neighborhoods, may they see the glory of Jesus Christ as we did at salvation and as we continually do as we look into Your Word. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.